Did you catch that last statement in that video, that final sentence by John Tyson is perhaps, uh, I think, one of the least talked about aspects of the human condition in our society today, uh, at least in the context of discussions regarding why we exist. And yet it offers such a powerful and poignant explanation as to why society has become so dysfunctional and broken. He said, our souls are created to know him. Our souls are created to know him. If that's true, then it stands to reason that if at our core we are not connected to the very function and purpose for which we were created, to know God, it makes perfect sense then that so many people are staggering through life, grasping at anything and everything that they can that might offer some temporary pleasure or escape from the reality of an unfulfilled life. And really, there's a lot of evidence of people all around us who clamor around in the dark, reaching for everything that feels good, rather than seeking the light that would allow them to see the truth and to find their way to true fulfillment and joy and happiness, which really is what we're all searching for, isn't it? And lest we think this is just the opinion of one man, Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, I formed and made. And then in Romans eleven thirty six, we read, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So we were created by God from him, through him, to him, and for him. We were created created to know him. And so until that day, when we bend our will and bow our hearts and submit our lives to Jesus Christ, to following him, we will otherwise remain in a spiritual stupor, drunk on our own egos and selfishness and pride because we're not being built up in Christ. So we instead have to try and build ourselves up, right? And that self-serving lifestyle that focuses our priorities inward has a lot of people running on empty these days because we can never buy enough or pleasure ourselves enough or build ourselves up enough to sustain any kind of meaningful and lasting joy or fulfillment. In fact, all that this world has to offer us apart from our creator is at best an empty promise. It's a, it's a hollow vision of happiness that is based on what we can do for ourselves and, and yet standing in direct opposition to that false fulfillment that the world offers us is true fulfillment. And that comes only from Jesus Christ. And that is realized as we give ourselves up for others. To God first and to others after that. And so joy and fulfillment found in Christ is the very antithesis of the world's prescription for finding joy and fulfillment. And so one way or the other, we're all busy working for something. All of us. We're, we're building kingdoms that we believe will provide us that fulfillment that we all long for. And the question then becomes, whose kingdom comes first in our lives? His or ours? That's a very important question. One that we must answer if we're ever to understand why we feel so unfulfilled at times in our lives. Okay, And the truth is, this applies to believers as much as it does to unbelievers. Because as we go through life, even as followers of Christ, we can believe in Him... Uh, we can believe what his word says and we can remain uh, faithfully in fellowship with the church, the body of Christ, and still feel unfulfilled, right? Or is it just me? Have, you, have any of you ever felt empty even as a follower of Christ? I certainly have. I've experienced times in my life as a believer in Jesus Christ when I, I was feeling very unfulfilled. I was running on empty. But we're Christians, 
We're supposed to be happy all the time, never depressed. We're supposed to have all the answers, right? Never confused. We're supposed to be satisfied all the time, never wanting anything more. We're supposed to be healthy and confident and successful, and our teeth should be perfectly straight and gleaming white all the time. Our families are perfect. They're in complete harmony, never in turmoil, right? Because we're not supposed to have any problems because we're Christians. I'm not sure where or when those ridiculous ideas ever came about, but somewhere along the way, we Christians began believing that hype. Except that when life didn't turn out that way, with every day being perfect, two things began to happen in mass in the church, in our country, at least in the West. Either people became disillusioned with Christianity because it couldn't live up to the billing, and so they left the church and abandoned their faith, or many who have stayed decided to try and prove that this prosperity gospel could be salvaged. And so church for a lot of people turned into sort of a version of Facebook, if you will, even before there was a Facebook. For many, church became a place where people only allowed others to see them at their very best, right? A place where everything and everyone seemed to be a cut above the norms of life. And rather than just being real about who we are and how we are and allowing the church to be what it was intended to be, a place of refuge and salvation and redemption, a place of restoration and worship and discipleship and community. Notice every one of those descriptions suggests a process. Instead, we tried to make church a destination for those who finally arrived at the perfect life, their their best life now. But unfortunately, the result of that era in our history has been millions of people who now only see the church as a plastic veneer for hypocrites and thieves to hide behind place where people put on a a good act, but underneath it all, they're just as broken and dysfunctional as the rest of the world. And yet, if there's some good news in all of this, and I believe that there is, it's that through all of it, the true church is rising. I believe that. The true church is rising out of that era. Why? Because there's little reason for pretenders to pretend anymore. Because the majority of people, in my estimation, today are long over the false gospel of prosperity preachers who tried to guarantee health and wealth as long as you give them your money. People don't need to go to a church service on Sunday anymore just because it was a tradition in their family. People are no longer buying the claims of the church as having the answers to life's questions just because we say that we do. Today, people are looking for something real, not something shiny. They're looking for sincerity and honesty and integrity, not false humility. They're looking for genuine community, not religious tradition. Uh, Today, people are looking for people who are different, peculiar, people who actually live what they say they believe. And when we do that, when we live out the gospel, it's okay that sometimes we're broken and confused and hurting and in turmoil. It's okay because the true gospel isn't about achieving our best life now. It is rather about real people following a real Savior who promised to always be with us even when our real lives aren't perfect. And so when it comes to building kingdoms for ourselves, we can't outdo the world. And in fact, we're not supposed to. 
there's always a better version of that somewhere outside the church. On the contrary, what attracts people to the true church, I'm convinced, is when they see us living fulfilled lives, not perfect lives, fulfilled lives as we seek to build his kingdom first. And that means sacrifice. Building his kingdom is done by what we give up, not by what we obtain. So while non-believers seek fulfillment through what they can amass for themselves, Christians seek fulfillment through what they can give away to God and to others. And so we can and we should know true fulfillment in our lives as followers of Christ, even when everything isn't perfect, because we're seeking his kingdom first. And that should show, by the way, to other people around us, even as our imperfections and our struggles will certainly show as well. And that's okay. And so if you'd like to experience in your life a deep and abiding fulfillment, even in the midst of your struggles and your hardship, then we need to answer this question honestly today. Whose kingdom comes first in our lives? His or ours? Because the answer to that question is what separates us and what we do as followers of Jesus Christ from the rest of what the world does. It, it's what sets us apart. And it is in that process of seeking his kingdom first that we can discover fulfillment that transcends our circumstances and our struggles and our material desires. The only way that we can answer that question then, whose kingdom comes first in our lives, his or ours, the only way that we can answer that question, I believe, is by taking a long and sober look at our priorities. So we're going to talk about that today. As we continue our sermon series, Running on Empty, we're going to talk about priorities. And my hope is that by the end of this short study, we will, each of us, be able to recognize where our true priorities lie and also what adjustments, if any, need to be made so that we can realize the fulfillment that comes with seeking first the kingdom of God. Because he didn't, he didn't create or intend for us to run through life empty and unfulfilled. He did not. All right, our text for this morning is the first chapter of Haggai. Some people say Haggai, either one is correct depending on your translation. And uh, we're going to read through chapter 1 and maybe the first nine verses of chapter 2. If you want to turn there, it's an interesting a little book in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only two chapters. But it tells a really big story with, with great lessons for us to glean from today. Haggai was one of the minor prophets. He prophesied to, to God's people in Jerusalem in 520 B.C. This was after the Jewish exiles began returning from their captivity in Babylon in 538 B.C., but before the temple was rebuilt in 515 Okay, and so at this point, as we enter the story, the entire city of Jerusalem is in ruins along with the temple and the city walls from, from the Babylonian siege in 586. And as the story opens, we find the temple and the city destroyed, and yet the returning exiles are fast at work rebuilding their homes while, while the temple lay in ruins. And so apparently there was a problem with that, not with their activity, but with their Priorities, And so God speaks to the leaders of the city through his prophet Haggai. Okay, we're going to read it together. Haggai chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And just to mention that phrase, these people, is a Semitic expression, and it implied 
God's displeasure with them. Otherwise, he would have referred to them as my people, okay, which he does later. So he's not happy with what they're doing or, or specifically what they're not doing, as we'll see. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is, is, uh, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So the people of Israel return home to Jerusalem after decades of captivity in Babylon. And they immediately begin rebuilding their homes. And along comes Haggai, the prophet. And he says, hey, fellas, uh, God told me that you should rebuild the temple before you rebuild your homes. And so they respond, well, it's not time for that yet. We need to get our houses rebuilt so we have a place to live first so that we can establish our families first and so that we can uh, we'll worry about the temple later and I was talking to Daniel earlier some of them had rebuilt their homes and were living in them and exiles were still coming back and so there was all this activity happening and God says "Uh uh-uh you stop what you're doing and rebuild the temple now honestly who wouldn't feel that way right think about it this way let's say a foreign army invades our country And we're all forced to leave our homes and we're placed into concentration camps for several years. But eventually the invading army is driven back out of America and we're permitted to return to our houses. Except that when we get home we find that everything's been destroyed. Our houses are piles of rubble as is the town and the businesses and even our beautiful little church building here. And so you immediately get busy rebuilding your home because you need a place to live for you and your family. Which seems perfectly reasonable except that your pastor shows up and he says, hey, y'all, which is how you'd say it here. God told me that you're supposed to stop working on your house and come rebuild this church with me first. Now, how many of us, and I give myself a free pass because I'm the preacher that heard from God. (laughs) Otherwise, I'd be right there with you. How many of us would drop what we're doing load up our tools and drive over here to the church property and start rebuilding this place while our homes are laying there as heaps of rubble, right? By the way, I understand the difference between the Old Testament temple and a New Testament church building, and that fact isn't lost on this analogy, but the point remains, given the right set of circumstances where our comfort and protection and security and provision are at stake, how many of us make God's kingdom the priority in that moment over our own needs? And I'll just tell you, I'll be the first to admit that it is against my very nature to put God's will before my own. For most of my life, my default position has been me first and God later. Why? Because he's God. In my mind, he doesn't need a roof over his head or clothes to keep him warm, right? He he doesn't need to fill his belly with food. God has everything that he needs. I, on the other hand, am needy. I have a lot of needs. So it only seems right that I take care of myself and my own and then get to God's plan sometime after that once I'm squared away. And that's exactly what the Israelites were doing here at this point in the story, except that God says we must make his kingdom the priority even over our own needs. That's a little bit of a hard pill to swallow in this situation. Now, the good news for us is that there's a result to that obedience 
uh, that might relieve some stress that you might be feeling right about now. And we'll get to that in a moment. But just know for now that God says my kingdom first, even when that means personal sacrifice to you, even when it means struggle, even when it means discomfort and hardship, you seek me and my kingdom first. It's all about priorities. And yet this ancient passage could just as well be a description, I believe, of much of the modern day church today. Because sadly, the church, I think, has become a lot like the culture around it. Always hungry to get more for itself, but it's never enough. So we eat, but it's never enough. We, we drink, and we're never satisfied. And although it is the Lord that brought his people out of exile back into their city, and although it is because of him that they even have the opportunity to rebuild their lives to begin with, they still wanted to do things their own way instead of his way. And so they refused to build the temple first because their priority was their kingdom over his. Verse 2 says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. In other words, we'll get around to it eventually. They're not saying they won't do it. Just not right now. It's not that we don't care about what God wants. We just care about what we want a little bit more. And honestly, I fear that that same sentiment has become rampant within the church today. We're all building kingdoms, either his or ours. That's the first point in our outline. We're all building kingdoms, either his or ours. So it's not a matter of activity. It's a matter of priority. Okay, and of course, we know that, that we don't ultimately build God's kingdom, right? He does that, but he does it through us as we comply with his will. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that'd be you and me, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about how we build the church on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. So, so ultimately, God builds his kingdom, but he does that through us. And we either conform to his will in that or we don't. We either work toward the building of his kingdom first or we work toward our own. And the point is, that we cannot do both with equal priority. One has to take precedence over the other. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6, 24. So not only are we all working to build kingdoms, but only one of those can be on the top of our priority list in our lives. And if the top uh, is our kingdom first, our desires, our stuff, our aspirations, our agenda before God's, then we're simply putting our wages into a bag full of holes, according to verse 6. We're squandering resources that he's given us for temporary gratification instead of investing them into something that brings an eternal reward. So ask yourself, which kingdom takes greater priority in my life, his or mine? And, and answer that honestly, because if the answer is anything but his, I'm just telling you, you're missing out on more for your life that God has for you, probably more than you, than you even realize, okay? Let's move on in our story. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. 
Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast, and on all their labors. All right, we, we cannot expect to receive good things from God when we seek our own will before His. The people of Israel were more concerned with their own needs and desires than they were with God's plan for them. And the result was that they weren't reaping the benefits of their labor like they should have been. They were working really hard to meet urgent needs at the expense of what was more important, okay? That which is most urgent and that which is most important are not always the same. Sometimes they are. But not always. And often I've found in my own life that if I honestly assess what I'm doing, at times I find that I'm chasing urgent needs at the expense of more important needs. It's not, it's not uncommon for me to be here in the office working on something pressing for the church. I might be writing a curriculum that we're going to unveil soon or putting together some element of the coming worship service or studying for a teaching or doing something administrative that needs to get done. And someone calls the church in great need. Maybe a prayer need or a need for some counseling or some instruction or people walk into the church. And of course, you can't always drop everything that you're doing every time the phone rings or every time someone walks in with a need or there would never be a sermon or a Sunday morning worship service because people come in and call constantly. In fact, there's an old saying that says, poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. <laughs> Sometimes that's true. So it's important that we use discernment and wisdom when our routine or our work is interrupted for sure. But it's also true that often what is urgent, what is right before us, staring us in the face, demanding our attention, should take a back seat to what is more important. There are times when I have to stop what I'm doing, even though it is pressing to give time and attention to something that's more important. It may be a focused prayer time for someone in some situation or to counsel someone in a time of real crisis to help someone who is in need. Likewise, my family, we spend little time at home together, all together. They're, they're always uh, pressing needs. So when we get uh, a day at home together and there are all of these needs, the lawn needs mowing, the house needs to be straightened up, the trash needs to go to the dump. We have a vegetable garden and animals that need attention. But I also have a wife and kids that need my time. And there are times when what is urgent has to wait another day or another week so that I can attend to the most important needs, namely in that situation, giving time and attention to my wife and kids, my family. It's all about prioritizing, not allowing the urgent to constantly dictate our lives, which is one big reason I believe that people are running through life constantly on empty. They chase every urgent voice that is calling their name for their time and attention while they neglect the more important needs. When's the last time you left the dishes or the lawn to spend time reading your Bible and talking with God and maybe just meditating on Him? When's the last time you, you didn't sign your kids up for every single possible activity available to them so that your family could spend more time together instead? When's the last time you denied one of your own needs in order to be able to meet the needs of someone else. And of course, if you're a parent, you do that all the time with your kids. But what about for someone who's not your direct dependent? How about someone who is a part of your church family or maybe a neighbor 
uh, in your community? Do we focus more on what is urgent than on what is important? And again, sometimes they're the same, but not always. And so it's a healthy practice to get into to prioritize your schedule every day, every week. Try and separate when you can the most important things from the more urgent things. And I'm telling you that alone can help to bring more meaning and a lot less chaos into your life. But that means disciplined prioritization. Learning how to consistently prioritize your life. And this is just what the Jews we're dealing with here. They're, they've neglected the importance of rebuilding God's house for the urgency of rebuilding their own homes. And then finally, God's able to get through to them through his prophet. He gets through. They begin to respond. They begin working on the temple again. Okay, let's jump back to the story. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And that phrase, feared the Lord, is the Hebrew word yare, uh, which among other things means devotion or devotion to. So in other words, the Israelites have done a 180 here. Uh, they've decided to devote themselves to God first. All right, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you declares the Lord. And I'll just tell you, if you're in a time of struggle or hardship in your life, there is nothing better that you can hear than the Lord's voice say, I am with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Do you see the immediate difference when they begin to walk in obedience to the voice of God? Just before this in verse 11, just before they began seeking God's kingdom first, we see the Lord saying to them, I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. And then the moment they readjust their priorities to begin devoting their lives to the Lord first, even to the forsaking of their own plans, he says in verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. That is a dramatic turnaround in a short period of time. And it wasn't because God's priorities changed. It's because the people's priorities changed. All right? Intimacy with Christ is directly linked to our priorities. Too often, I think we wait on God to change our situation in those times in life when we're running on empty. And so we just keep doing what we've been doing, hoping that he will bring about some kind of change for our benefit, when all the while he's waiting on us to readjust our priorities. And the moment that we do that, the moment that we put him first and his plans first, he steps into our circumstance and he says, I'm with you. I'm with you, just as he did with the people in Jerusalem. You know, people come in for counseling, uh, and not just here. This has been the case my entire career in ministry. And they'll say things to me like, I'm in a desert place right now. You know, my life seems very spiritually dry. I just don't sense the presence of God like I used to. And honestly, there can be different reasons for that. But very often, these are the same folks who don't attend church regularly. They aren't in consistent fellowship with the body of Christ like we're commanded to be. 
They don't attend a community group or a home group, which is where we focus on small group support and prayer and and building relationships within our fellowship. They don't help with ministries where they could be serving others in the body. They don't participate in church activities outside of services on a regular basis. All, All the things that we see the early church people doing in Acts 2, all the things that we're commanded to be a part of, quite frankly, as followers of Jesus Christ. And so... There are those who isolate themselves from the body, from the church, and they still expect to experience God's presence in an intimate way. And guys, I'm just telling you with as much love and compassion that I can, if you're not committed to the body of Christ, which is the church, then you're not going to experience intimacy with Christ on a regular basis because you're not seeking Him and His will first. His word is clear. Isolation is a form of selfishness. And that is unequivocally not God's will for your life. The church is God's design for every single believer without one exception. No lone rangers. We talk about it all the time in the kingdom of God. We don't see it in scripture from the, from the inception of the church on. That's what the church was designed for. What does that mean? It means that when we reject the church, we're rejecting God's plan. And is designed for our lives. And if we don't recalibrate our priorities in line with his word and his will, then we have no grounds to expect intimacy with him. However, and this is a big however, the moment that we obey his voice, as it says in verse 13, and make his will our first priority, he says, I am with you. I'm with you. Now keep that in consideration if your life has felt a bit empty lately. And again, that, that can be for different reasons. I understand, but from the context of this discussion, it's worth doing some really honest self-assessment of your priorities and see if you can identify any area in your life that you've placed before your relationship with Christ in this church because it's really difficult, probably not impossible, but it is really difficult to immerse yourself in regular prayer and the study of the Word of God and fellowship with the church and still feel disconnected with His Spirit. Because when you make Him and His will your first priority, He is with you. He is. Hard to feel disconnected when you're in that place. Okay, let's finish our text for today uh, and then we'll discuss one more point. So chapter 2 and we'll read the first nine verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace 
declares the Lord of hosts. You see what's happening here? As soon as the people put God first, in fact, if you follow the timeline in these two chapters, this is just 27 days after they began rebuilding the temple. So right after they make a commitment to seek first his kingdom, he floods them with promises of blessing, material blessing, spiritual blessing, and emotional blessing. He talks about his glory in verse 7. He talks about silver and gold in verse 8. He talks about peace in verse 9, which, by the way, is the Hebrew word shalom. And that word has a much deeper meaning than the, the simple sense of a serenity that we think of when we think of the word peace. That word shalom, which I think we have the Hebrew spelling up there, it encompasses the idea of wholeness, right? Well-being, prosperity, even, even right relationships. It's all wrapped up in that one word. And as you continue to read through the rest of chapter 2, and we won't take time to do it this morning, but God just continues to promise additional blessings and even protection uh, to his people because of their obedience. So as soon as God's people begin seeking his kingdom first, he promises to bless them in every aspect of their lives. And look, it's the same thing today. The same is true today. There are immeasurable blessings in store for us when we make God's kingdom our first priority. That is the truth. Of all the things that we strive for in this life, they pale in comparison to the blessings that God wants to pour out on his people when we seek his kingdom before our own. I'm sure you're very familiar with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And then, verse 33, he makes this very well-known promise that we quote often. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's not a prosperity gospel, that's just the truth. And that's what the word says, all right? I think it's worth noting here, by the way, that he didn't say, seek only the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's an interesting point. He didn't say, forsake all of your needs and be miserable and do without so then you can better seek only the kingdom of God. It's not what he says. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and then God will bless you with all of that other stuff. You see? So it's okay to buy yourself some new clothes. It's okay. It's okay to have nice things. It's okay to take care of ourselves, but not at the expense of obeying God's will first. And as I mentioned earlier, I have to fight against this. It, I like me too much. So it's easy for me to think about myself before God. That's not good. You see, it's not about choosing one to the exclusion of the other. It's about choosing one over the other. 
He's not saying don't seek things for yourself. He's saying seek God and his kingdom first, and then I'll take care of all that other stuff. That can all come later. It's all about priorities. It's about putting God before everything else in our lives. And when we do that, when we really do that, it's hard to feel empty and dry and restless. It's hard because when we seek God first, He pours out everything that we need and then some into our lives. It's really hard to feel unfulfilled when you're living in that, in that space. Okay? If you believe what the Bible says is true, then you believe that the same God who created the universe, the heavens, the earth, everything in them, is the same God that created you. This is the same God that designed the human body. In fact, in Psalm 139, 13 and 14, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Knitted together by God. Fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, he didn't go to all that trouble. He didn't knit you together fearfully and wonderfully so that you could go through this life miserable, stressed out, worn out, depressed, hurting, confused, lonely, Burned out. No, he, he didn't. He didn't go to all that trouble for you to walk through this life on empty. He made you to live your life victoriously. Now, look, we go through seasons and we struggle. I get it. But he made you to live your life victoriously over all of those things. And the key to realizing that victory in your life, that immeasurable blessing in your life, is by making him your first priority over everything and everyone else, including yourself. So if happiness and fulfillment are priorities in your life, then make Jesus Christ your first priority and all those things will be added to you. Shalom will be added to you. Wholeness, well-being, prosperity, and right relationships. And it all comes down, it all comes down to priorities. This sounds good to me. Let's pray.